remember, the next time you're watching a spicy episode of RuPaul's Drag Race, democracy may break out. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? No. Yeah, the judges vote, right? To be really honest, I've never actually seen a full episode. I don't know. I've seen one, and it was in a bar. <laughs> it was in the Abbey. It was like a season premiere. We are so glad you're listening to this early episode of Kick-Ass Queers, but there's just a little something we want to let you know. You may find that the audio is lacking in places. I believe the technical term is cock-a-poopy. <laughs> it's... Yes, it's, it is. It's rough. It is, co- is cock-a-poopy. We, we really like the content. We hope you enjoy the content as well. So we hope that you yeah, just stick it, with us. It should be noted, Rachel and I both have degrees in exactly this <laughs> and should not have faced these challenges. Fun fact, Larry and I actually met in our degree program that taught us how to do exactly this. So <laughs> stay in school, kids. <laughs> and, and we both work in higher ed. That's the amazing thing. <laughs> I- Hello and welcome to this episode of Kick-Ass Queers. I'm Larry Womack. And I'm Rachel Stewart. And today, we are going to be talking about a gay couple celebrated throughout antiquity and even into the present day as liberators, tyrant killers, and the greatest symbols of the birth of democracy. Their names were Harmodius and Aristogiton. And how's that for a power couple? I know. I've been training myself to say Aristogiton all day. Aristogiton. Aristogiton. Wow. Yes. Who are they now? Harmodius and Aristogiton. Well, I am very, very curious to hear about the story of Harmodius and Aristogiton. You just love saying it. We're going to get to some other names that are both challenging and fun to say. Phenomenal. Trust me. Let's do it. So we've talked in previous episodes about how queer people have often been at the forefront of defending democracy. Today, we're going to be talking about how queer people help democracy come into existence in the first place. Basically, gay drama got way out of hand, and now we can vote. That's the nutshell version. Hail as old as time. So when someone says birthplace of democracy, what place comes immediately to your mind? Greece. Not the play. The place. Right. Yeah. And and specifically? Uh, Athens. Athens, absolutely. Ooh, I know my I know my history. This should make it clear right up front, though, that I'm not a classicist or historian. I don't believe you're a classicist or historian, judging by your answer. So <laughs> my um, my usual methods of research and reporting are mostly no good here. We can't bring Aristotle in for an interview. But I will say with amateur confidence that if we're being honest, there's evidence of democratic activity dating back to prehistory and the evolution of Athenian democracy can be traced through the Archaic period, the Draconian laws, Salon, etc. And the fight for that cause continues right up to the present day, even in modern democracies. I mean, we we just had a president actively campaign to void the results of an election to hold on to power after he lost. It's not like someone handed us democracy with a bow and then we just get to keep it forever. And the Greeks were working on it for a while before we got to Athenian democracy. And Athenian democracy does not look like democracy as we have it today. Although there are some key parts that are standard. Right. 
And speaking of gay drama, <laughs> ostracism is hilarious. Oh, fun. <laughs> yeah, right. They weren't voting to give people offices. They were voting to throw them out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And they were there. Yeah. You can't live here anymore. No. It's complicated. It's very complicated. But what the Athenians thought of as the spark that lit this fire of democracy was really top shelf gay drama. Oh, shit. The background to this story is Athens was ruled by a handful of wealthy families who, as they accumulated wealth and land, would also make claims to power. One of these rich guys, Pisistratus. Excuse me? Pisistratus. We have a lot of fun names in this episode. Continue. He was actually a descendant of Salon. And he tried three times to name himself Tyrant, which is basically a king who rules as he pleases without a constitution. He had two short reigns. He gets deposed and exiled at the end of each of those. Then the third time, it actually sticks. And by all accounts, he's actually pretty good at running the place. He redistributes wealth to help the poor. And I mean, let's be real, probably to weaken his rivals. He unifies Attica. He invests in arts and culture. He builds the original Parthenon at the site of the one that still stands today. This will be on the test. Remember it. He makes a much bigger deal of the Pan-Athenaic Festival, which is a lot like the Olympics. And in fact, the stadium for that, which he didn't build, it was built and rebuilt a couple hundred years later, is still in use today. And it looks damn good for its age because the entire stadium is built out of marble. But he didn't do that. He just got the ball really rolling and made a big deal of it. And Aristotle, who will be one of our two sources for most of this, just because he's one of the only early ones, says that Pisistratus ruled more like he was working under a constitution than like an all-powerful tyrant who just did whatever he wanted, and that his rule generally seemed to follow the model set out by his ancestor, Salon. So if you're living in Athens, not a bad time, honestly, even though he is a tyrant. But he died. And again, we have two sources for what happened next, and they sometimes differ in details. Thucydides, no Gesundheit for Thucydides. Well, I was trying to decide if it started with a DZ, a TH, a J sound. So Thucydides? THU. Okay. Thucydides says that his son Hippias became tyrant after his death, and he made his brother Hipparchus basically a secretary or minister of culture. Aristotle says that the two eldest sons, Hippias and Hipparchus, ruled jointly. But Hippias was the one who was really in charge because Hipparchus was just too young and concerned with the less serious matters like sex and poetry. So Hippias is ruling shit. He's now a tyrant. Now that Pisistratus is dead, Hippias is running stuff. Hipparchus is having sex. Yes, okay. and he may or may not be like the co-tyrant. Oh, co-tyrant. Because it just depends on the... That makes sense. Tyrants love co-tyrants. At first, they're popular, okay. just like their father. But that popularity starts to wane. And whether this is due mostly to Hipparchus or to another half-brother named Thessalus depends on the source. Enter the tyrant killers. Harmodius and Aristogiton are a gay couple who are somehow in the sphere of the tyrants. 
A few regions and islands of Greece have sort of laid claim to their origin, but the truth is we really don't know much at all about their backgrounds. We only know the drama that ensues here. One of the brothers, not Hippias, but either Hipparchus in Thucydides' telling or Thessalus in Aristotle's, becomes enamored of Harmodius and begins to pursue him. And Harmodius is like, nah, man, like, I I love that you're a tyrant and all, that's cool, (laughs) but I've got a good thing going on with Aristogeton over here. Oh, so not polyamorous. No, apparently not. And of course, Aristogeton is probably not happy about this either. And the tyrant is not happy about the rejection. He has what Aristotle calls exhibitions of rage and just really loses his cool. Jealous boyfriend. And I, I really want examples of this, but I, I don't see any in sources that would be based on history. Yeah, it's not like he could go through his text messages. But you know what? If you could go through text messages, I would like to believe that Aristogeton is definitely going through Harmodius's text messages right now. Well, yeah, I mean, there's literally a tyrant who's like, hey, baby, I can give you the world. He's like, who's Thessalus? Who is this Thessalus whore? Uh, our tyrant? So... As if to make amends, the tyrant, whether it be the co-tyrant or the the younger half-brother, says, you know what? I'm sorry. The Pan-Athenaic Festival is coming up. To make up for it, why don't we let your little sister be a basket bearer in the procession? And this is like a nice honor. So imagine if your little sister was invited to take part in the Olympics opening ceremony. You'd be happy about that. I am the little sister, so go team. Oh, okay. So Hipparchus or Thessalus, maybe they say, sorry that we like hit on your man. Let's wait. So wait, who? No, sorry that I've been pursuing you so aggressively. Sorry, I've been pursuing you so aggressively. Your younger sister and carry a basket into the Pan-Athenaic games. Correct. Got Got it. Okay. Continue, please. But then she shows up. According to Thucydides, the tyrant says, I didn't say you could do this. I mean, I would let you, but this is only for virgins and you're a whore. (laughs) Ooh, girl! Yeah. Yeah. According to Aristotle, he actually says that she can't because her brother Harmodius is, quote, a person of loose life. So wait, 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 what did they call he's it? He's the whore. What did they call it in William Dorsey Swan? Oh, a pack of erotopaths. Yeah, this is a pack of erotopaths. Got a pack of fighting. Greek erotopaths. Mm. Okay, love it. So either way, they break his poor little sister's heart, they humiliate her publicly, and insult his family's honor. Oh, wow, that's, that's like death. And at this point, Harmodius and Aristogeton decide, you know what? Maybe we don't need tyrants anymore. <laughs> that, that'll do <laughs> they it. They get with... Right. They, they plot with some of the other wealthy families to kill Hippias and Hipparchus at the Pan-Athenaic procession. Wow. So they're going to do like a full on Ferdinand II hit. Yeah. So the, the thinking is that they can walk around carrying swords and no one will think it's odd. Yeah, it's like guns but in then... America. Nobody cares. <laughs> yeah. If you take it to the right place, it it's, can it's, seem perfectly totally natural. Horrible. Playgrounds in Idaho. But I don't know if that's fully true because some o- other authors have pointed out that they didn't start carrying arms in the processions until later. So maybe this was just because it was a crowd or for dramatic effect. You're telling me that something was written 4,000 years ago may be a little bit hazy on details. Yeah, I mean, 2,500, 2,500 oh, okay, years ago. Okay, okay. 
Have we mentioned that this is 2,500 years ago? No, I mean, I think that by context of talking about Aristotle should probably help people out with timelining. Yeah. 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 Anyway, continue. So they're lying in wait at their stations, ready to kill these guys. When they see one of their co-conspirators chatting with Hippias in a friendly way. So they think, oh, shit, we're getting snitched on right now. Yeah. So they just go for it without the help of the co-conspirators. Okay, so it's just, so now it's just, it's just Harmodius and Aristogeton who are going to go and kill Hippias. Hippias and um, Hipparchus. And Hipparchus, but not Thessalonians. Yeah, he doesn't even exist in the other version, but he's in Aristotle's version. Okay, so they're going to go kill these two for besmirching the honor of Harmodius's little sister. Honest to God, this is reality TV. It really is. Top shelf gay drama. Oh, absolutely. This is like Survivor meets Drag Race. Yeah, let's do it. So they catch Hipparchus arranging the procession and they kill him. But they don't get Hippias. And Harmodius gets killed by the guards. Oh, you gotta be kidding me. I'm invested at this point and now I'm like, poor Aristogeton. Will he ever find love again? And Harmodius and Hipparchus are kind of together, honestly. They, they, they wound up together, dead, but together. Oh, God, really, Larry? And also, none of this would have happened if Harmodius hadn't, like, oh, been so hot or flashed his junk. Whatever he did with Hipparchus. Poor Aristogeton is just dragged into this drum. Don't shame the victim, Rachel. Harmodius can wear whatever he wants. <laughs> without expecting a tyrant to come up and hit on him. All I know is that it sounds like he did not communicate the boundaries of his relationship. And now there have been serious consequences. Mm, maybe. I mean, it kind of sounds like he did, though, is, oh, the, is the problem. Uh, the guy didn't respond well. Eventually. Oh, you think he let him on. So, I mean, this this is not a happy ending for their gay tyrant-hating love, no. sadly. It's an awful story, Larry. It's an awful story, but I will say... The stories about Aristogeton's interrogation are also pretty awesome and pretty dramatic. For starters, when they ask him who his co-conspirators were, he's like, oh, you know, it's all of your friends. And he starts naming all of Hippias' allies to drive him crazy and sow distrust and paranoia. Good job. Some psychological warfare. Although Aristotle says that some people of his time believe that those were the actual conspirators. I mean, it would... Not surprise me. There's a lot of intrigue already in the story. And that would be kind of cool, too, because um, Aristotle also describes the accused as, quote, many persons who belonged by birth to the most distinguished families and were also personal friends of the tyrants. I can't help but feel I just please go with me on this one. I feel a real connection between this story and the Me Too movement, to be honest with you. One person finally came forward and was like, hey, listen, tyrants are kind of bad. And that tyrant tried to silence them. And then all of a sudden you have all these other people, the wealthy families, being like, no, actually, you're kind of a tyrant. We don't want that. And I mean, it is over sexual harassment, really. Exactly. And and I'm going if, if he'd have left him alone. I'm now going to imagine the Parkus is looking like Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, except he's dead. Like if we had killed Harvey Weinstein in a parade. Yeah, exactly. That would be the outcome here. We're not condoning that. He's imprisoned. Aristogeton, the sources say, just wanted to be killed rather than tortured. And I mean, keep in mind, he's he's got no future. He just lost his lover. He's not experiencing a good time right now. Oh. So he's really trying to piss him off. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, I mean, and he's, Aristotle says, he's got nothing to lose at this point. Yeah. And Aristotle says that he finally achieved this by promising to tell him who the real conspirators were if he got a handshake promise that he would not be executed. See, I really thought you were going to say hand job. <laughs> he probably tried that first because <laughs> when Hippias shook his hand, he was like, how can you shake the hand of the man who killed your brother? Yes. <laughs> and then... Okay, Aristogiton sounds very badass. He sounds like a sassy, sassy... Well, I don't know. How old is he at this point? Is he a twink? Is he a ho-ho? Is he a ding-dong? I mean, so in the... You know, Greeks define this stuff as pederasty, and he would be the older one. But their idea of pederasty wasn't like... Nambla. Uh, yeah, necessarily. Although it was the ancient world, so people were married off and stuff very young. But that just means he would have been the older of the two, which means the other would have been probably a youth, some somewhere between like 15 and 20 or something. So these are twinks. Right, but he would be the older of the two. Okay. So conceivably over 30, but probably just 20 or who knows. Okay. So still, everybody's pretty young. Age of consent, obviously different in ancient... Grecian times. Okay. So yeah, but I mean, they they had them, which is interesting. I didn't find that out until I was looking into some parts that we'll get into a little bit later. Okay. In the coming years, as Athens becomes the early democracy that we all know, this comes to be considered the act of bravery that started the revolution. Okay. Because Hippias is now paranoid because people were trying to kill him, and and Aristogiton told him that it was all of his friends and stuff. Right. He becomes more cruel. And he's just generally getting weaker and more unpopular by the day. He's also lost his co-ruler. Right. He got, got himself killed. And there are wealthy exiles who he's kicked out who see this and rally support for an invasion so they can come back. Okay. Which brings us to the next group of queer people to move the ball forward. Okay. The Spartans. Go Sparta! Spartan society was very much like... You have to do everyone. You have to have a wife. You have to produce children. But you also live exclusively with men. And if you don't participate in this pederasty system, you would not be admitted into one of these tents. And that was the only way you could become a citizen. So is this the precursor for YMCA? It's the precursor for a super homoerotic Zack Snyder movie. (laughs) Actually, yeah. It wasn't always sexual. No. But let's face it, it probably usually they was. were by by today's standards, what they were participating in would legally be defined as as pedophilia. However, during that time, that it was a norm within that society. Well, I mean, not necessarily. Usually, yes. But again, this age can go up to 30 for the younger partner. It's kind of funny because Xenophon, who was this, he was great, but he was a total Spartan fanboy is the one source that's like, oh no, the Spartans never thought about physical beauty or anything vulgar like that or sex. They were just very chaste people. So now you'll every now and then see some very specific kind of dude posting a video or a blog that's like, gay Spartans were a myth, Zack Snyder forever. Sort of like how Jesus was a white dude. Right. But yeah, gay sex or at least homosocial relationships were very much baked into their political structure as an expectation. Although what the Greeks were doing, it's a little weird to even think of it as sex now (laughs) because they would like put it between their partner's thighs 
And honestly, I don't know if that would work for me. That that feels like a challenge. I feel like we're about to get sucked right back into a scissoring conversation. We are. It's. I don't understand this either. It's, like, well, well, it's friction. It's, yeah. it's all friction, right? So, like, if you've got a hot, I guess. hot set of thighs, that shit's gonna be real tight, right? And then, which have you have you heard the the Alexander the Great stuff about Hephaestion's thighs, <laughs> like? Also, there are people who will say that he was straight. But let's not lie. He liked sticking his little Alexander between the thighs. And he also came from a system that was even more homosocial. Right. The Macedonians, and particularly the line that he came from, a lot of gay sex happening with these people. The family of Clisthenes, an Athenian who was in exile, had paid to rebuild the sanctuary for the Oracle of Delphi. Hmm. So she owed him a solid... So he asked her to tell Sparta that they had to go help him take over Athens. Okay. And some sources say he just straight bribed her. Um, As an aside, if you Google Clisthenes, you'll find that there was also another famous Clisthenes who was a soldier and apparently a crossdresser. And it was a running joke in certain plays of the time that if you were in his unit, you, you were very effeminate and... And very into the men. You're in his unit. I love it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So he's just everywhere. I would. Okay. So, so just can we imagine that though? Like a whole regiment of kick ass drag queens who are effeminate, but will will have no qualms of killing you. And you know, there's no chance we're not going to do the sacred band of Thebes in like our first 20, 25 episodes, no, right? No. Like we, we absolutely will. Um, so Sparta helps. Okay. They go in, they take out Hippias. Okay. But then Sparta sides with a rival of Clisthenes. For a while, he gets exiled. But the guy that Sparta puts in charge learns nothing from what just happened. So he exiles a ton of other people. He seizes their properties because he says they're cursed. He tries to dissolve the citizens' council. And the people do not take kindly to this. So before you know it, he's hiding in the Acropolis for three days before they can sneak out of the city. Drama. So drama. Right. So dramatic. Clisthenes comes back, starts turning Athens into a democracy, at least in the classical sense of the term, which would not be considered a democracy today. And the tyrant killers become national heroes and the primary symbols of democracy and freedom in the Greek world. Excellent. The very first statue to be paid out of public funds was a large bronze of Harmodius and Aristogiton to put in the Agora. So I just want to point out here when we talk about how civilized America is, we're still having to have conversations about why we need to tear down Confederate Civil War statues and iconography. And ancient Greece was constructing giant bronze statues of two well-known gay dudes. Yeah. But, you know, maybe the Persians will come along and just steal those statues because that's what happened to the statue of Harmodius and Aristogiton. I don't think they want them. They're like, that's tacky as shit. Mm, yeah, yeah. I would like to think that they would have better taste now. I, fe- um, I feel like it, you said it was the Persians who sacked? Yeah, it, w- it was Xerxes, actually. Xerxes, okay, okay. So the Persians stole the original. They commissioned another. And then someone either Alexander the Great or one of a few other people have been mentioned, returned the original. And for a few hundred years, both pair stood in the Agora. 
the originals and the new one. Both of them are now lost, but there are a lot of copies of the second one, the most famous being the one in the National Museum in Naples. So we don't um, have any of the originals of the two of them. We just have a copy. We have contemporary copies of the second version. There were no copies made of the first, which makes me think maybe it was just bad. I don't know. Because <laughs> <laughs> there, there are a lot of copies of the second. Okay, okay. Whichever version or versions were up, offerings were made to it, like a religious thing, including yearly gifts from the Minister of War. The descendants of their families, ironically, given that this should be about democracy, were given all sorts of legal privileges, including front row seats at the theater and exemption from certain religious duties. I mean, honestly, if I could get exemption from religious duties and front seat tickets to Taylor Swift, I'll overthrow a dictatorship. Look out. Look out, North Korea. And this is how I get put on the list. What is the list? I don't know. Um, a, a law was even passed that banned slaves from being named after either of them. It's not great, That's right? the weirdest backhanded compliment. <laughs> it feels not in the spirit of democracy, if I'm being honest. Well, again, though, it's... That there were slaves, then... Yeah, yeah. That's, um... <laughs> Okay, okay. Uh, I'll have to, I need to digest a lot of this. <laughs> you, you also see them just show up time and again in art, on vases, on reliefs, in poetry from the classical era, right up to that hymn by Edgar Allan Poe. Mm. Interestingly, today especially, a lot of people will say that Clisthenes set about turning them into these national heroes because he didn't want to give credit to the Spartans. But the Spartans just backed another even more tyrannical tyrant. So why would anyone credit them with ending a system they actually tried to preserve in the first place? And a really cool thing about this is that they're very consistently held up as symbols, not just of democracy, but also of a very pure queer love time and again throughout two and a half millennia. Yeah, I mean, I think what I love about this story is, you know, obviously they were in the literal sense of the term, kick-ass, but they were known just as much for their gay love and their relationship as they were for being the fuse that ignited democracy. So this is the part where I usually thank my sources. So if you're listening, Aristotle or Thucydides, we love you, (laughs) keep turning out those hits. (laughs) You did a great job, we're still reading your stuff today. Oh, that's not going to happen without that Ouija board, but okay. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I loved being able to share this story with all of you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to show us some love by subscribing, rating, sharing with your friends. And be sure to join us next time when our topic will be... Florence Nightingale. Ooh, that's going to be so good. Yeah. Mm. And until then, all you future tyrant killers out there, continue to kick ass. Are you ready for some bonus facts about this uh, crazy Spartan military system? Tell me about the Spartan military system, Larry. So first of all, the these camps that they went to were eventually you had to have a pederastic sponsor if you were going to get citizenship. The name, the name of the system, are you ready for it? Do it.
a go gay. Oh my gosh, it's just go with go gay. Right. I I always read it as sort of a goge or something, and then I heard actual scholars pronounce it, and they're like a go gay. I was like, no, no, this is not what you're calling this. Okay. The thing, Xenophon, the Athenian historian who was really pro Sparta and was like, they weren't banging or anything. Yeah. He had both of his sons educated under this system, but maybe he believed that. I I, I don't know. Maybe that's, how he, maybe you, that's how he was able to sleep at night, you know? Well, even if you don't believe that and there's every reason to believe that Spartans probably wouldn't think that was a big deal because that wouldn't start until they were like 13 or so, which was the same age you would marry girls, right? So in their not super evolved system, that that might not seem so weird. But what was really extraordinary is like they entered the first phase when they were seven. And like one of the things they would do is underfeed them because they would expect them to steal food. And then if they got caught stealing food, they would punish them really severely and really brutally. So they were teaching them how to steal and how to not get caught. Like that's just a little glimpse into the way this crazy <laughs> system worked. Like, I mean, that's effective. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not something I would think most people would want to send their children into. But Xenophon, no. he, was, uh, he was really into it. It builds character. Um, okay, wow. what's... What's the second fact? Well, the second fact was that he had his his sons. Bonus fact, not about Sparta, but about Athens. Remember our old friend Pisistratus? How could I forget old Pissy? He lived in roughly the same time that the Odyssey and the Iliad were written. So he started claiming that he was descended from Hector in (sighs) the Odyssey and the Iliad. Um, so is there any actual proof that, you know, do, do we have like a 23andMe or an Ancestry.com that's <laughs> tracing those two back? I, I don't believe so. Um, I don't, I don't know that there's any proof that Hector ever lived. There's not that much proof that Pisistratus ever lived. If we get right down to it, <laughs> this whole episode, the tyrant killers, like, yeah, I mean, this may well oh. be a myth, but it certainly... If it is, it's the myth that Athenians believed in the very near aftermath. So it, it feels well, likely to be very I, true. 